The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I was invited to give the second talk of the day partly because I'm one of the few senior students that works full-time in, in a conventional um, nine-to-five type job. And so I'm going to talk about that somewhat, but I think that it's, it's really sort of an artificial um, distinction because as Kim was saying earlier, that we're all involved, we all have our livelihood, we all have our lives and, and how we engage in the world. So I realize that the things that I'm going to talk about are really universal. But I'll start um, by saying a little bit more about what, what did the Buddha say about right livelihood. And one of the the things that the Buddha said that's um, most widely quoted is those things that are clearly not right livelihood. And rather than rely on my memory and my uh, wordings, I was going to read a paragraph out of this book by Bhikkhu Bodhi. I don't know if you've, if you've all seen it. It's, it's on the, eight, this, the Noble Eightfold Path. It's, it's a, a wonderful um, description that's just distilled down to the essential words. And so out of this whole book, Right Livelihood is one page. <laughs> so I'll read about half of it. It says, Right Livelihood is concerned with ensuring that one earns one's living in a righteous way. For a lay disciple, the Buddha teaches that wealth should be gained in accordance with certain standards. One should acquire it only by legal means, not illegally. One should acquire it peacefully, without coercion or violence. One should acquire it honestly, not by trickery or deceit. And one should acquire it in ways which do not entail harm and suffering for others. The Buddha mentions five specific kinds of livelihood which bring harm to others and are therefore to be avoided. Dealing in weapons, in living beings, including raising animals for slaughter as well as slave trade and prostitution, in meat production and butchery, in poisons, and in intoxicants. He further names several dishonest means of gaining wealth which fall under wrong livelihood, practicing deceit, treachery, soothsaying, trickery, and usury. Obviously, any occupation that requires violation of right speech and right action is a wrong form of livelihood. But other occupations, such as selling weapons or intoxicants, may not violate those factors and yet be wrong because of their consequences for others. So, I suspect, I mean, I don't know you all, but I suspect that most of you probably don't fall into that, those categories that the Buddha said were not right livelihood. Um, 
but that still leaves a lot of latitude, right? There's still a lot of um, a lot of other choices, as as Kim had said, and I think it would be impossible to have some exhaustive list of what's right livelihood and what's not right livelihood, because it as Kim said that it's it's situational. Um, I have a friend who comes here sometimes who's a former Catholic, and he he often asks me the question. So what are the what does what do the what's the Buddhist's position on this and this and this? You know, like there's some set of rules. Like, okay, what's the rule about doing this, and what's the rule about doing that? And um, uh, I have to tell him, well, you know. So first of all, I don't know about all areas of Buddhism. There there may be types of Buddhism where there are a lot more rules. I don't know, maybe Kim or. Uh, Chris have have come across some of the other areas. Um, just the other day, somebody was was um, seemed to, who's been practicing here many years was a little bit concerned about Gil being a little too permissive about what he allowed people to do in meditation. <laughs> so <laughs> you know. It's, it's, so sometimes we seek somebody to tell us what's you know what's right. So I found so there's one other thing I'm gonna to read, which helped. Which when I read it, re, I realized well this is much more of a not a rule but kind of a guide star of what if if I was to try to remember one thing about how one makes decisions in one's life about how they're living their life and how they're earning their living, that this particular um, description is fairly simple and um, provides, and not too complicated, and provides a way to um, measure uh, or to weigh one's decisions. And this is from Bhanti Gunaratna, which is kind of the other book that we have for this this series. One thing is certain. The right thing to do is always to protect and nourish the wholesomeness of one's own mind. Indifference to harm is not wholesome, yet becoming upset, furious, or hateful is also unwholesome. Even if we decide that we must leave a job in order to achieve skillful livelihood, Quitting in a rage does not help us on the path. Our mind must remain calm, loving, and mindful. We must always remember that our highest goal is to free our mind from all greed, all hatred, all confusion. The greatest impact we can have on the world is to face every circumstance with a mind of clarity, compassion, and love. From a place of calm and equanimity, we act or decline to act, doing whatever most skillfully cultivates and expresses our loving friendliness and our compassion. So just keeping that in mind of, I think it's, it's similar to, to what Kim said, that, um, you know, paying attention to 
what are my actions doing to the state of my mind? You know, are they creating agitation, um, unrest, uh, ill will, or are they, com you know, cultivating uh, tranquility and goodwill and harmlessness? I think the first discussion I ever had on right livelihood was with Gil sometime in the late 90s. He and I went for a walk and I was asking this question which I imagine a lot of people have asked which is how do I know if, I'm, if I've got the right job? How do I know? Is this it? Could I be doing better? Or, and you know, he looked at me with his usual knowing look. <laughs> And um, he said, you know, Jim, there are some people that what they do is really important. You know, and they've really found the right job and the right profession and the right activity that's, that really resonates for them. But he said, for you it might be not so much what you do, but how you are. And when I heard him say that, I felt like I got the booby prize. You know, <laughs> I was hoping for some really, you know, like here's here's how you're going to do it. How I am? What's what's he talking about? So it's only taken me about another 16 years for that to kindly soak in and realize, oh yeah, how I am is what's important, not so much what I do. I mean, clearly the things that the Buddha had laid out about harming others, uh, deceit, and things like that. Um, are not going to be helpful in the long run if what's most important to me is cultivating a heart and mind that's free, that's not caught by greed and not caught by ill will and not caught by delusion. Um, in the 80s, uh, one of the people that I listen to for advice, not in person, but uh, in movies and on television and in books, was um, Joseph Campbell. And he's well known, he was well known at that time. When people would ask him that question of how should I spend my life, he would say, follow your bliss. And I think that was a wonderful general thing to say. He later came to regret saying that a little bit because I think people thought what that meant was that if you were on the right track, you were just going to be blissed out all the time. It's just like, oh man, this is so far out, you know, I just love, you know, I love life. He later said, I wish what I had said was follow your blisters. <laughs> I just I just found that out recently. <laughs> and I think that actually is more realistic. And the way that I took that when I when I heard that or, or read it was um follow what do you really engage with? You know, what do you you know, do you want to work so hard that you get blisters doing? You know, that it's it's really that willingness to engage in the the, the often the struggle and the difficulty 
of life, which is really where the gold is. And I, and I think Kim pointed to that in, in her talk as well. Um, so, I was, so as I was working on this talk, I was actually driving back from Southern California yesterday afternoon, and so I had six hours by myself in a van to, to kind of contemplate um, right livelihood. And particularly, what is, it, what is it? Why do I call it work? You know, I mean, there's some people that say, oh, you know, what I do is it's so wonderful, I'd do it even if I wasn't paid. Um, I find that confounding, but, <laughs> but, but I'm happy for them that, that they would find something like that. Um, and I realized, I was telling Kim this at lunch today, I had one short period in my life, uh, this, uh, the summer between what, that I was 22. I had just finished my undergraduate education, so I, I no longer had any school work to do. I had gotten into graduate school at Berkeley, which started in the fall, so I knew what my future was going to look like. And in the summer, that summer, I was living with my parents. They were feeding me. They were providing me with vehicles. <laughs> I had a job in a factory which started when I punched in at 8 in the morning and it ended at 4.30 when I punched out. And the rest of my life seemed to be completely without responsibility. And it felt so free to just not, you know, nobody was counting on me for anything. And I thought, aha, that's, that's, what, um, that's what happiness is. <laughs> So, and of course, as soon as I got to graduate school in the fall, they told me I'm going to teach and I had to do research and everything else. So that period, that was a short, sweet time, but I realized um, living a life without responsibilities is really um, maybe being in that, um, the, the following year bliss <laughs> period of, but now I'm, I'm more into the blisters. So I was thinking about um, what part of my job is the most challenging. You know, where, where is it that I struggle? And what I realized, it's in the areas of commitments, agreements, and responsibilities. And I realized that those are areas that all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, um, things we encounter, whether we're working in a job, whether we're uh, caretaking, volunteering, you know, being a student, being a teacher. Um, you know, all of our life involves uh, either explicitly or implicitly having commitments to primarily to other people and agreements with other people and having responsibilities for getting things done. How I struggle with that is that all of the, I mean, all of that sounds fine. Some of the things, like when I took my job with the federal government, you know, there's forms, okay? You agree to follow the, you know, follow the laws of the United States, um, be drug-free. Um, we have ethics training every couple of years, you know, that we, how we treat each other in terms of um, non-harassment and non-discrimination. Um, 
where the struggle is for me is those ideals of commitments and agreements and responsibilities when they run up against a human life. You know, you only have a finite amount of time. You only have a finite amount of energy. For me, I find I have a fine, it seems like a finite amount of time during the day where my mind is really, really clear, you know, and I'm organized and I've got it together. And at other times, it's a real struggle. So, um, so that's, well, and I have to just, uh, as a sidelight, I'm very fortunate in the job that I have. I have a wonderful boss. He's supportive. He's communicative. Um, he seems to be willing to remind me over and over again <laughs> when things are due <laughs> without getting angry or frustrated. So uh, I plan to work until he retires because <laughs> I can't imagine having another another boss like that. Um, So in preparing this talk, I started to realize, oh yeah, that, that's in those areas of what agreements have I made and what things have I said that I do um, is often where um, I respond with ignorance, where my mind goes to, yeah, maybe I can just not notice that right now. You know, some way to try to make things more... Um, simpler, more manageable. Uh, so, I th so I know that I'm not alone in this. I imagine everybody who's... Um, I guess short of living in a cave with no other relationships, that any anyone living in relationship knows that... Um, that commitments and agreements um, need to be uh, flexible and be able to renegotiate. Um, where was that? Just yesterday I was, on, on the way back from Southern California, I was in a Starbucks and there was a woman with her three young children and they were saying, but mommy, you said you were going to do this, this, and this. And she goes, yes, and I changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> I thought, what, what a great mother, you know, just to uh, not try to like snow them with, you know, some explanation or get them confused. Just say, I changed my mind and we're not going to do it that way. So, um, let's see. So actually it's about time. So I'm not going to tell you how to do it because I don't know how to do it. It's, it's, it's an ex like every day is facing the challenge of what, what on my to-do list got done, what didn't get done, what am I going to do tomorrow, what's never going to get done. And how do I live honestly and ethically with those kind of compromises always in front of me. So... I thought rather than my telling you more stories about my Im imperfect life, um, that we would have 
uh, all of you speak to each other. So is this, is there, do you want to? Thank you, Jim. <laughs> so we'll again have um, a chance to talk in small groups. And as before, we'll get into groups of four. So let's see if we can uh, do that again. Let's see if we can find a different group of four than you were in before. Go ahead. Does everybody have a group of four? Is this microphone on? Well, someone leaving. Oh, okay. Okay, that's pretty good. Is this on? Can you guys hear this? Okay, great. So here is the question. There's actually two questions that are related to what uh, Jim was sharing with us. So the first, and again, we'll have about, about 15 minutes. Okay. So the first question... Okay, sorry. So the first question is, what responsibilities and commitments in your life do you find challenging? And then, how do you practice with these responsibilities and commitments? And the idea is that this will be able to be applied, whether you are working in an employed situation, if you're a volunteer, if you're retired. Um, we all have responsibilities and commitments and agreements in some way. So, please, go ahead. Yes. What responsibilities and commitments in your life do you find challenging? How do you practice with these responsibilities and commitments? Because this is very much the realm of livelihood. Okay, so winding up your conversations, thanking your group. And coming back to where you were sitting. So that sounded like a very rich topic. <laughs> there was a good amount of energy around that. So I'm curious if anybody has any highlights to offer. <laughs> Anything you'd like to share about great insights on how we can overcome our challenges and commitments?
or just what are they? (laughs) (laughs) Or what they are. We can share them. (laughs) And bow to and honor our challenges. I'll kick things off again, because it led to a good discussion last time. I think it was in Wright's speech um, when uh, one of the instructions for the exercise was to observe somebody else's self-discovery. Chris, I think that was in Wright's speech. When, um, and I find this a lot of times in the group, that I learn more just being surprised of what comes up of what comes out of my mouth <laughs> in addition to what is coming out of other people's mouth. Um, and I definitely found this uh, this time that a lot of it um, being a highly um, analytical and efficient person that my issue is not necessarily with keeping commitments but the harm that is done in keeping commitments. Ah. And so um, I will, uh, I am a task completer. And I will complete every task, but it may not be um, wise, those decisions, Mm. either in terms of my own well-being or in terms of the well-being of others. Um, And that what really makes the difference for me is in that moment, whether or not I am making that out of love or out of fear, Mm-hmm. And so if I can center in my body when I'm about to do the umpteenth task for the day and I might be exhausted, uh, it's am I doing this because it's best for the overall well-being of all involved or am I doing it because I'm afraid that if I don't, I will be judged or I will um, some sort of consequence. Thank you. That's... Very helpful. We're always encouraged not to act out of greed, hatred, delusion, or fear. Those are kind of the four ways if you're about to decide something that you can check. Thank you. Um, just for me, one of the things that came up around working with these challenges, I mean, it sounds very simple, obviously, is just bringing mindfulness and investigation um, and that I've noticed just saying to myself, this is really hard right now. And like, oh, I wonder why this is so hard mm-hmm. has just allowed a lot more space and kind of like a stepping back and sense of perspective that over time can kind of like accumulate and help me actually like move forward with things that feel challenging. Thank you. I think when it comes to work, 
I, I don't want to work, so it's a daily battle um, and struggle. And I gave up about three weeks ago and just kind of went, oh, screw it, and kind of did this spiraling thing where I'm showing up at work and I'm going through the motions, but I'm just absolutely despising it. And so this is this is the the the, the job going forward is to go back to bringing the mindfulness and the compassion back into the work and, and understand that you're going to have to accept this and you've got another five or six years, if not more, you're going to have to find a way to make this work. Um, so that's that epic battle of, you know, just from the very, the very depths of your being not wanting aversion, right? Mm-hmm. And having to live through it and make it work anyhow. It's, um, it's interesting. So you can, if you're not um, careful about your practice, this can overwhelm absolutely every area of your life. So it's, it's actually a, a guru, I guess, of sorts. Are you totally clear that it has to be this way for the next five or six years? Um, I could sell my house and buy an RV and travel the world or go and sell everything and try to grow food for a living. Um, I have a mortgage, so yeah, I feel trapped. I probably am not, but I feel trapped. Mm. And four chihuahuas Mm. and a tortoise. (laughs) It's it's good to ask the question. Gosh, I'm looking at my group and I'm thinking, did we actually like answer the question? Or, <laughs> so I don't know. I think we just, it was a lively conversation, but not sure we uh, found so much solutions, but talked. But um, just something I shared and, and maybe some other folks might feel the same, but shiny object syndrome. Just there's so many, you know, there's so many things that, you know, we're passionate about that we want to do, you know, with media. Everyone's doing awesome and great things out there. And, you know, it's just, it's easy to, like, think of ideas and, you know, brainstorm of new opportunities. But when you start it and, you know, a few seconds in or a few minutes in, you're, like, thinking, you know what, maybe this is kind of hard. Or, like, oh, look, squirrel, like something else. Um, and and then we're off, like, off to, like, another opportunity or something. And it's just a, it's just a cycle sometimes. And, and uh, you know, like, right now I... I I'm working at a marketing agency in San Francisco, and it's it's one of the best companies, best best clients, best kind of work. Uh, and I'm I'm only four months in, and and then a part of me just thinks like, you know what, like, you know, I did, there's something else I want to try also, and I want to do this on top of that. Like, you know, it's 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 kind of a struggle, and I just thought, you know, the what will always be changing. Um, that really stuck with me too, like. It's not maybe so much what you do, but how you do it. Like, how do you show up? How do you show up for work? How do you show up for what you want to do? And, and uh, the messy middle, the messy middle after you get started on something, maybe you just got just to gotta find the patience in yourself to ride it through and not be so impatient to, like, jump out of it when, when things get a little bit hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something I'm, I'm just learning more about myself. Yeah. Thank you. I think a common theme that came up in our group was recognizing when you're overcommitted and finding the courage to say no um, and not feeling the pressure to keep up with the corporate American rat race. And one of our, our group members had this awesome idea of she sets a timer on her phone every hour, a mindful bell, just to remind her to come back to her breath. And I think that's just like the coolest idea. And... I told them, I, I tried doing this um, 
couple of years ago um, when I used to work for an airline. And I'm like, yeah, let's have like a mindful bell to like go throughout our office. And when you hear the bell, everybody just kind of stops and follows their breath. And they just all looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and that should have been my mindful bell of, hey, maybe this isn't the right job for me. <laughs> and it, it took me a couple of years to figure it out. And I finally did end up leaving that job after 21 years. And I, after... I've got like a two-thirds pay cut, but like 300,000 times the happiness of the job that I'm doing now. And so I think, when Jim, when you were saying, how do you know when you found the right job, you just feel it, and you feel it right here in your gut, and you just know. I see another hand over here somewhere. No, okay. Thank you. I don't know if this speaks exactly to to the question, but um, I was just thinking about you know the. I think someone said it's the how you're doing, not the what. But I go to family martial arts um, with a five-year-old, and the um, the teachers there are so great with her. And when it came around Christmas time, I just remember when I was getting ready to do my little cards and gifts, and those were the ones that the people that came up for me first because even though it's a little thing, the time that they spend with her and they pick her up and they fly her across the room like an airplane and they tell her how much they love her. And I, I mean, it makes all the difference when I drive her home. She's just like a different person. And that, I think sometimes we don't maybe always remember in our jobs how we impact people on a daily basis. Just one little passing airplane for a five-year-old can make all the difference. And I think that will make a difference in how she is later in life too, those interactions. So it, it's a big deal, those, I think, those one-on-one -on -one interactions that people have sometimes. Yeah, thank you. Moment to moment really makes a difference. That's how we live. If you have any other... Oh, go ahead, Jim. I think I, I was going to respond to something you said, which reminded me, um, it was in about 2001, I was working in Japan. And I was having dinner with some of my coworkers, and one of the Japanese women that worked at the restaurant was cleaning a high chair and it was amazing she was doing it just very slowly and very thoroughly I mean she got every square millimeter of that chair clean and it seemed like it took about 10 minutes and I thought god can't she do that more efficiently or, but then another part was thinking like boy wouldn't it be great to have a job where you just like you know you just take your time and you just do a very thorough job of, uh, you know, something important, you know, cleaning a, cleaning a high chair. Um, I think somehow when I, when I bring that image back in my mind, it's, it can help me give myself permission to slow down and say, okay, I'm not going to get everything on my to-do list done today. But, you know, I'm going to do a couple of things, and I'm going to do them well, and I'm going to enjoy it, you know, or, or, or not enjoy it. But, you know, like, <laughs> if there's impatience, then notice what impatience is like, you know. So just knowing that there's, 
that there's other ways to do things than just faster, 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 more, more, more. You know, that 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 um there can be great value in just doing something simple um and, and really being engaged in it. There was something I'm trying to remember, I think Judy was talking before about um doing things with heart. There was a baseball player, um, Cal Ripken. He set the record for playing the most consecutive games without ever being out with an injury. And they asked him, well, how is it that you haven't been injured in playing all of these games? And I don't remember what position he was, maybe a shortstop. And he said, because I always go all out. I always do things wholeheartedly. So when I'm going for the ball, I just go. I don't worry about getting injured or, you know, trying to hold back. I just, I just do it. And, um, you know, that, I sometimes remember that, that, you know, it's just that if you can just, you know, like wholeheartedly do something, um, you know, and letting go of, of some fear that, well, I need to hold back, I won't have enough energy, or maybe I'll get hurt, or something like that, but just when you recognize that this is something to do, then just do it. There was one more back here. Let's have that one be the last one. Yeah. Thank you. Um, this is going to be a bit long, so pardon me if it goes a bit longer. But I wanted to share a story to, to exemplify in my mind what I think is how the right livelihood is impacted sometimes. Uh, in my home, for a few years, we lived together as a joint family, my two married sons and their wives and my first grandson. And a couple of times a week, we'd have Dhamma talks. And in one Dhamma talk, we talked about the parmies of tolerance. A few days later, my, my daughter-in-law came home smiling and told me, she said, she said Dad, the, the Dhamma talk really worked. I said, what happened? She said, I used the parmi of tolerance in my job today, and this customer was really, really getting obnoxious, and I remembered our talk, and I became very tolerant, and it made the transaction so easy. So I think in our livelihood, sometimes we need those guiding lights on us sometimes, which can help us make our jobs easier and our life easier. And I think we use those stories a lot in, in our homes on how to become you know, more adaptable at work or how to enjoy our life or how to enjoy our jobs. It may not be great, but uh, those help us. And with the fact that, or not a fact, with the idea that if we dig deep, we might get sweet water, so that kind of stuff. Thank you. Thank you. So now we'd like us all to do a short sitting, just be a, a few minutes to collect. So taking an alert and upright posture. Gently closing your eyes. A very easy way, just connecting with the breath.
And just noticing what energy is in the body right now. We've had a lot of talking, a lot of discussion. Things may have been triggered for you in this last um, two and a half hours. not necessarily a time to resolve all of that. It's just to notice the, the energy and the vitality. into the body. Noticing this is what it's like to be alive. This is what human, taking a human birth is like. deciding to make a commitment to yourself to continue to pay attention, to continue to be tuned into and aware of the body, the energies, the experience of being alive. being committed to not missing it. Okay, so we're coming to a close for this session on Right Livelihood. I hope it will be an interesting month of practice.
and that you'll, you know, bring in uh, many of the ideas that we've talked about and be aware of the breadth of this and um, really make the, the Dharma an exploration in your whole life, which is what the Buddha really intended for it to be. All right, thank you. Before we break up, I have an announcement. Yeah, turn this off.